Welcome to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. I'm Tina Pippin, along with Lucia Holsether, my co-host. Paulo Freire's foundational text for revolutionary pedagogies, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, has been extolled, examined, exhumed, extended, and critically evaluated for over 50 years now. Our conversation partner on this podcast has done all these things, delving more deeply into Freire's often-neglected dialogue with Marxism and Marx's pedagogical practice. Derek R. Ford is a leading instigator of revolutionary pedagogies and assistant professor of education studies at DePaul University. Ford is an author, activist, and organizer. Their books include the just-released Teaching the Actuality of Revolution, Aesthetics, Pedagogy, and the Sensations of Struggle, Communist Study, Education for the Commons, Encountering Education, Elements for a Marxist Pedagogy, In Human Education's Jean-Francois Lyotard, Pedagogy Thought, and many other books and edited books, and articles on eco and urban pedagogies and politics. Ford is also an editor of Liberation School and a podcaster, helping to create the Reading Capital with Comrades podcast series. I first encountered Ford's work in his article, Marxist Pedagogies Then and Now, Research and Presentation, in the book edited by Nino Brown, Revolutionary Education, Theory and Practice for Socialist Organizers. This article is a good starting point for understanding the influence of Marxism on Freire's thought and Ford's own Marxist commitments. In this podcast, Ford takes us into the terrain of Marxist educational practice and its use in resistance movements and campaigns. Listen for the ways of expanding concepts such as Marxist theories, Lenin and Castro in particular, dialogical pedagogy, revolutionary optimism, along with examples of their own revolutionary educational practices. Ford situates pedagogy in a post-truth era and navigates the concrete spaces, sounds, challenges, commitments in his classrooms and in the belief in the power of the people to enact change. Welcome, Derek Ford to Nothing Never Happens. Derek, we're really glad to have you on the podcast today. Um, if you could introduce our listeners to how you came to do this work, sort of your origin story with revolutionary pedagogies and, and Marxist pedagogies, uh, your experiences, your influences, mentors, theories, uh, workshops, whatever, um, whatever inspired you to do this work. Yeah, well, thank you for having me on. It's great to be here um, and with you all. And this is a, this is a great question. I, I think, you know, one thing is that I came to pedagogy's revolution. Uh, I became, I came to pedagogy relatively late, much later than revolutionary politics. So I'll kind of take these separately. But I think that really the main origin is my mother, um, who is a speech language pathologist and uh, worked for the state for a long time growing up. And when I was a kid, I would, you know, we didn't 
she didn't have, we didn't have money for daycare. So I would, you know, drive with her on her visits and whatnot. And I remember, um, you know, just sort of like in general, her sense of, uh, you know, like sort of innate sense of justice, even though she was very mild mannered. Um, and I remember just driving around and I would play with the children, you know, with, with the kids while she was talking with the parents and, um, you know, and then I remember like just seeing the, the, the drastically different circumstances in which all of my fellow, you know, people my age lived. Um, and, you know, my mom kind of not, not being able to really explain that to me, but, you know, being able to like affirm that, yeah, this is wrong and this is messed up. Um, and when I was in, in elementary school in fourth grade, I, uh, became friends with somebody named Preyas Roy, um, who is actually a street musician in Chicago. So if you're ever um, on that main strip in Chicago, he's playing the xylophones quite often out there. Um, but he was the first of his family uh, to be born in the United States. His, his family was from India. And I spent a lot of time in their household. And both uh, his father and grandfather were members of the Communist Party and different Communist parties in India. And his grandfather fought in the liberation struggles against British colonialism. And so they would talk to us about this. And, you know, I mean, I was nine at the time. Um, Preyas was also, and he was much more advanced and sophisticated than I was, but the, his, his, his parents and just sort of being there, it wasn't just necessarily what they were saying, which made sense. They were able to talk to us in an accessible way, but also the kind of spirit that you got uh, from listening to them and their sense of perseverance and struggle and, you know, like all that they've sacrificed for, uh, for justice you know, really inspired me. Uh, and I think also, you know, them being like, you know, male role models um, influenced me. And so they kind of started recruiting us and Preyas understood a lot of the, the theories at the time actually. Um, and so we read the Communist Manifesto and some other key texts. Um, and then, you know, I was always somebody who kind of like took action. And so like, I remember the first protest I organized was I was in eighth grade. I had helped start an acceptance coalition club in my school. This was the like, you know, late nineties. So a different era um, in terms of like LGBTQ politics. And it was primarily an LGBTQ space in my middle school. And the uh, administration was gonna ban women from wearing tank tops, you know, spaghetti strap tank tops or like tube tops. And so I organized a group of men to wear them in protest um, to school one day. And, um, and then I became involved, really, I just showed up, you know, I looked at what was happening in the city and I just showed up to these uh, organizing events and was fortunate to connect, to connect with somebody else, Sam Alcoff, uh, who uh, is, a, is a, uh, Linda Alcoff's son. Um, and he really, you know, took me under his wing and helped me learn how to organize. And this was in the late 90s um, and in 2000, and it was... Uh, at the time, you know, not only was there the anti-globalization movements, but there was actually a massive anti-police violence, anti-police brutality uh, movement happening, especially around, you know, the assassinations of Amdou Diallo, who New York City cops shot 41 times, uh, an unarmed Haitian immigrant. Um, and Giuliani was uh, running uh, at the state level at the time. And so I helped organize a protest in Syracuse, where I grew up, against Giuliani. Um, and then it was really in college, I, I started a student labor action group and we, uh, this was in 
you know, 2005, 2006, really at the height of the historic anti-Iraq war movement, historic in many senses. One, it was actually the first national, first anti-war movement in the U.S. to forefront the issue of Palestine. Um, even in the Vietnam War era, actually, speakers were, who would talk about Palestine would be sort of relegated to the sidelines. So this was the first, it was historic in that sense, and also in terms of the sheer numbers of people who came out. And so we organized buses, uh, you know, to go to participate in these protests and they would, organizers would come up and, and speak with us and build with us. And I realized that, you know, I, this is what I wanted to be a part of. Um, and I realized that a lot of the people who were doing the organizing, they were all in the answer coalition. Um, and many of them were also in the party for socialism and liberation, the PSL. And so I realized that, you know, I, I wanted to be part of that, that I, I couldn't, I recognize the limitations of just sort of my, being an individual, right? Um, because I have no idea as an individual where I need to be, what I need to learn, you know, to contribute to the movement. And so getting plugged into that kind of organization was very, very important. Um, and that's really honest. I mean, I always say this to people, like, especially activists and other organizers and other party members that like, I learned more in the PSL you know, in like a year than I learned in all of my, all of my doctoral training, right? Just because you're learning as you're doing and the experience of the collective experience in that, in that organization was, you know, and is just like the, a tremendous wealth of knowledge. Um, and so on the other hand though, I was um, in college and so I was taking classes and uh, there was one person in particular, Margaret Grebovich, who I was very, very interested in, in and, and moved by. I loved her classes. She's an amazing teacher and just an amazing thinker. And she introduced me to, you know, um, like uh, queer theory and feminist theory. She taught a class on leotard and, uh, and all of this, right? Which, you know, um, I, I was glad to have that kind of experience because I was already an organizer, right? Um, and so when I when I read these different theories that you know are so often pitted against each other, I was really looking for like, well, what can we take from them? You know, what's good here? It's like, you know, it doesn't matter if they're not like hundred percent in line with my politics or what you know whatever. Like that never happens. You know, I mean that's and that's not how change actually happens. It's not by like a small group of people who share an exact political identity. Um, so that was also influential in like the sort of way that I approach and, and continue to approach intellectual ideas and concepts. Um, it's almost like a united front approach, right? Which is, uh, you know, important in the communist tradition because it's when we we unite with, you know, as many sectors of society as we can, right? A around common points of unity, despite our disagreements. And so they were definitely very important. And then in graduate school, um, I, you know, my, my, voyage into pedagogy was completely random at the time, actually. I, after undergrad, I went to Syracuse, New York, where my family was from, and I was working there and organizing there. And uh, I, I was really interested. I wanted to be a professor, if possible, and I just wanted to keep studying. And so I was very interested in queer theory at the time. And uh, But the, the, the women's studies program at uh, Syracuse University didn't offer a PhD or a master's. But when I was talking to them, they said, well, you know, we have a lot of students who come from this program called Cultural Foundations of Education. And it seems like based on what you're saying, you might be a really good fit there. I never really studied education, taken an education class, read anybody in education, really. Um, but I said, OK, you know, and I met with Barbara Applebaum, who would be my advisor. 
Um, and she, you know, was very influential. I mean, she taught me so much content and also taught me, you know, the kind of spirit of academia that is, you know, political and partisan, but also not closed and sectarian. Um, and so she was willing to learn from me, you know, and she let me take classes with others like Don Mitchell, a Marxist geographer who was very, very influential in my development. Um, and then, uh, you know, Peter McLaren uh, agreed to join my dissertation committee basically after talking to me for like five minutes. He's a very generous person um, and, and helped me out a lot. And then, of course, somebody else I came into contact with is Tyson Lewis. And he's really the one who got me thinking about pedagogy in particular. Um, and realizing that actually I have very little idea what pedagogy is. And whenever I see the term, I feel like maybe none of us do, or we're all talking about, what are we talking about? We're talking about pedagogy. Um, and then it was really like a combination of all those experiences that led me to my current work in revolutionary pedagogies and the relationship between pedagogy, politics and revolutionary transformation. Thank you so much for that amazing answer. Um, I, I think I want to just jump off like right where you you left, which is what are we talking about when we're talking about pedagogy? And maybe you could say um, maybe you could say a little bit about what are we talking about when we talk about critical pedagogy for you as well? So kind of a two part question. Yeah. Yeah, no, great question. Um, and again, yeah, once it, you know, I, I wrote a book before my dissertation with Curry Malat and critical pedagogy was in the subtitle, but we never dealt with pedagogy. And that's why I wrote my, my second book, Communist Study, um, because, you know, so much of the academic educational literature that was like, quote unquote, radical or whatever was really about like the content of what is taught. And it was also about the structures of education and how they needed to be critiqued and how, you know, they helped reproduce capitalism you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, but there wasn't anything about actually like pedagogies, right? Like, and so pedagogy for me is really an educational relationship between teachers, students, and content. Um, and it, it, different pedagogies turn on the different sort of logics or, or motors or pulses that move us and to engage with all those things in relationship. So pedagogy for me, isn't actually political. Right, like there's no such thing as a, a truly political or a truly Marxist pedagogy because it depends on such a number of you know conjunctural factors, right? And there's also an antagonism between politics and pedagogy for me because politics is is binary, right? It's a struggle for or against. If you're in a political struggle, you're struggling against something and you're struggling for something, right? And you're struggling for power. You're struggling for the power to to reshape you know, society or this specific policy or this specific, you know, uh, event or whatever. And pedagogy is not um, binary in that sense, right? I mean, pedagogies are, are planner, they're sort of expansive and the, um, they shouldn't actually, I think, right? Revolutionary pedagogy shouldn't be solely dictated by an end goal. And so I think, I mean, in my work, you know, a, a lot of what I've what I've done is build, building on the work of Tyson Lewis and others is um, thinking about the relationship between the pedagogies of learning and the pedagogies of studying as they relate to reproducing capitalism and also uh, transforming uh, capitalism into a, a, a communist uh, future. 
And so learning, for example, is a, is a pedagogy that's really determined by a predetermined outcome, right? And that's why we can measure and quantify and assess someone's learning. It's only because I know what the outcome looks like in advance that I can tell you, okay, you're 50% there, you're 75% there or whatever. So it's really organized around an ontology that begins with, I can't do something, and then ends with, I can do and I am doing that thing, right? And studying is different because studying is not guided by ends, but rather it's more about means, right? So when you're studying, you, you, know, you always have an end goal in mind, right? I mean, you go to write a dissertation or a book or whatever it is, and you, know, you have this end goal in mind, but as you begin studying, that end goal quickly retreats, right? And you're all of a sudden you find yourself, you know, wandering these labyrinths in the library or on YouTube or, you know, online databases or, you know, uh, talking to community members. And you really have no idea where you're going. Right. Um, this end goal is still there, but it's in abeyance. And so you're engaged in this open process where like sort of anything is possible. Right. And to me, the experience of studying is an experience of realizing that the world can be radically otherwise. Right. It's not an experience that explains to me that it can be. It's an experience that actually like demonstrates, right, that it can be radically otherwise. Um, and so for me, that's really what, what pedagogy is. It's the logics and the forms through which we engage ourselves and each other in, um, you know, in particular content. And as far as critical pedagogy goes, I mean, look at, you know, I came in uh, to the education program and didn't know anything about it. So I looked up, you know, Marxist education and, you know, critical education and came across all this, you know, literature. And I wrote my master's thesis on Judith Butler and the critical pedagogy debates um, and the role of subjectivity. And, uh, and, you know, it's really, really interesting. And like, I, I found it really fascinating, but I also kind of felt like it was like really stale, right? Because of course, who like, you know, the years I was citing, the publications are from like 94, 99 or whatever. And I also felt like they were just constantly talking past each other, right? And it was no longer really generative. And so I was like, this is a new moment, right? Um, where I don't really, now I, I gotta know that stuff, but like, how relevant is that to people today, right? Especially like in movements. So I read more Paulo Freire and of course, Marxist literature and education. And, um, you know, it seemed to me the most like susceptible to the most accommodating to revolutionary politics, especially Peter McLaren's work around revolutionary critical pedagogy, right? Which, you know, is premised on, as he says, reclaiming the Marxist and revolutionary roots of critical pedagogy. And so I said, okay, yeah, let's do that. Um, but then, you know, this is why um, you should always read your source, primary sources, because um, my colleague and comrade Curry Malat and I, we started, we said, okay, well, let's go back to these founding texts of critical pedagogy, you know, and let's see these, these, these revolutionary roots. And we couldn't find any. And in fact, what we found was like, it was basically like 100% anti-communist and it was equating socialism with fascism. And it was, you know, it was denouncing, um, uh, you know, anti-colonial and, and socialist states much, much harsh, more harshly than it was denouncing capitalist states. Um, and so Curry's done a great deal of work, you know, sort of exposing that. Um, and that was very important at the time. And then with Freire, you know, I remember reading it 
reading Pedagogy of the Oppressed and I was only assigned the first two chapters in my graduate philosophy of education seminar. And I think that that's very common because when I read the last chapter in particular, I found myself like totally, my, my understanding of his pedagogy was completely transformed because there he says, this is a pedagogy that is used um, as a mediator between the, the leaders of a struggle and the masses in the struggle. And that's really where that dialogic, dialogical pedagogy comes from. And actually um, a lot of his work is building from uh, uh, George Lukash's work uh, and showing that the party is really an educational apparatus. Um, and that's that, that was it for Freire. It was, it was a method to be used within the party, right? Within the organization that leads the oppressed and the working class to power. And so I think reclaiming that is very important. And then it's also, you know, showing why that's so, uh, that's omitted from even the program I was in. It's not like it was a super liberal program or whatever, but uh, why is that so often admit, you know, omitted? And why is, uh, Freire's, you know, work, um, uh, his letters to Guinea-Bissau, for example, right, in which he's talking about the incredible revolutionary transformations that happen there, um, socialist ones, right? Why does nobody ever talk about that? And so it that has to do really, of course, with the anti-communism that is really the guiding dogma today in academia, um, increasingly less in actual, in actually in actual social movements, but especially in academia. So I, I felt that it was it was important to sort of correct that and challenge that while also building on it, which doesn't mean that anything under the heading of critical pedagogy is bad or whatever. You know, I don't I don't operate like that. You know, it's not good or bad or anything like that. Um, but I felt like the contribution I could make is to actually like make this connection, especially because I was involved and I wanted to make this relevant to the work that I was doing day in and day out and to the work that my comrades, um, you know, across the country and across the world were doing. Yeah, if we could pursue that a little further, um, yeah, you've answered a lot of a lot of good questions here, especially about Paula Freire. Um, how do you bring people to into um, you know get over the uh, stumbling block for some people of words like communist and Lenin and Castro and you know things like that? How do you bring people to the space they can hear the the, the real um, conversation that's going on there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, I mean, I'm, I haven't been around in academia for that long, right? I mean, I started graduate program in 2012. Um, and I remember like the first, you know, doing a, a panel on uh, the book that I did with Curry, Marx Capital and Education, which I don't read it. It's, I mean, it's, it's okay, but it's not very good. Um, but I remember, you know, a lot of questions about that. Well, you say Marxism and, you know, it's like this. So I think one thing is to separate the fact that Anti-communism, I mean, anti-communism is the unofficial religion of the United States. We've all been indoctrinated with it for over a hundred years, right? But the fog of anti-communism is now lifting, right? Um, and, and, and I mean, before um, I, I was writing and working on that first book, right? It wasn't really lifting. Sanders wasn't a thing yet, although we had Occupy. Um, and so it was like more controversial, but we felt it was important to like get this out there and to begin reclaiming the history, right? With, with the, all of its setbacks, of course, but all of its actually incredible triumphs. 
um, and reclaiming that. So the first thing I think, especially with academics, is just that getting people to realize to realize that there is a dogma that limits our horizon of possibility and limits our, our engagement with the people. And that is the dogma of anti-communism, which basically says that you can change the world um, but you and you can fight for reforms and you can resist, but you can't actually have a revolution and you can't actually like transform society, right? By taking power. Um, and in the people's movements, that there's a, you know, it, there's a complicated history of that. Brian Becker has a great piece on liberation school about uh, uh, breaking the, it, the uh, continuity and ideology or something like that. Basically talking about how, you know, all the people's movements in the US um, really, I mean, from, from, I mean, at least from the 1920s and later, right, especially in the 60s and 70s, they were all Marxists or they were all, you know, related to Marxism. The Black Panther Party was a Marxist-Leninist party. Asada Shakur, right, was a communist. Um, and wherever you went, people were talking about it. And that was the sort of, you know, that was a dominant pole in the movements. And then after the overthrow and dissolution of the Soviet Union, it became, you know, discredited from the people's movements and all these academic theories stepped in to take their place. Um, but I think now we're in a moment that like, you know, if you look at it, like over 50% of young people in the US are open to socialism. Those numbers increase when you talk about uh, black people, people of other oppressed nationalities and races and identities. So people are really open. I mean, they know that capitalism, it doesn't work. It hasn't worked for them. They have no future under capitalism. They're looking for alternatives. And so it's actually a great opening. And then in terms of like, you know, I think, it's not so much about introducing the theory. To me, the theory is only a tool to get somewhere. So, you know, sometimes we debate theories as if like, okay, which one is better or worse as if we could determine that in our minds, right? But political theories are only good insofar as they, they actually help people change the world. And so I think that one of the most important things is to actually revisit that history and understand that we've all been indoctrinated with with this bullshit. And, and we all know it when about like Christopher Columbus, right? What they tell us about Christopher Columbus and the founding fathers and the American Revolution and everything, right? And Abraham Lincoln and the, you know, the civil rights movement. But we also, then why would we accept what they tell us about the Soviet Union or about Cuba or about the People's Republic of China or, you know, Vietnam or Korea? And so, I think there's a there's a lot of great texts that really talk about that. One, a short one by Vijay Prashad is called, um, I think, The Red Star Over the Third World. And it's a short book that talks about the Bolshevik Revolution's tremendous impact on the third world. Um, there's also a book called by Michael Parenti called Black Shirts and Reds that's really popularly written and uh, really debunks all the anti-communist and anti-Soviet propaganda. Of course, without saying that, like, you know, everything was perfect. I mean, no society is that. And if you think about it, the Soviet Union came into existence in 1917 in like a very, very backwards, underdeveloped country, right? Um, and if you think about what they managed to do in just a couple of decades, right, is really remarkable. In addition to, um, you know, make, making uh, national chauvinism or racism a crime. And a crime that was even more serious than like battery or assault, um, as well as you know improving the living standards of so many people, supplying weapons and um, you know advisors 
and doing battle, doing the battle of ideas in you know the global stage, providing propaganda for basically anybody who is struggling to overthrow colonialism, whether they were communists or not, right? That's really remarkable. You know, the same thing with China. And oftentimes we're told to compare, like, you know, people say, okay, well, you know, why don't you go live in Cuba or whatever? And they'll say, look at capitalist US compared to, to, to communist Cuba. But that's that's a false equivalence. And it and it puts us on the defensive because we shouldn't compare communist Cuba right now to capitalist America. We should compare communist Cuba right now to capitalist Cuba beforehand, right? When there was slavery, right? When there was widespread illiteracy, when people had no power, when there were no rights for transgender people, when there were no rights for women. Um, and then look at what they've done now, right? Um, and it's the same thing with the Soviet Union, right? Same thing with, with Korea, with, uh, with Vietnam and with Ethiopia and with, um, you know, Angola and with Ghana. And that's, I think, where we, you know, that really helps debunk people's uh, perspectives on this. And in terms of theory, I think, well, one, I mean, I did a podcast, um, Reading Capital with Comrades, it takes people through the first volume of Capital. And I, I say this is good, not because I did it, because it was actually, a, a, obviously, a collective project. But, um, you know, I think you can listen to like the 12 ep episodes, they're accessible, they're like, you know, each is under an hour, and, you know, get a good idea of what all of this is. Um, as well as, um, there's a book called uh, Imperialism in the 21st Century, Updating Lenin's Theory, you know, 100 years later, or whatever it is. Um, that's edited by Ben Becker, that's very, very good, a very good introduction, as well as Storming the Gates, How the Russian Revolution Changed the World uh, from 1917. And there's a great article in there, for example, by uh, Peta Lindsay, who talks about why it was that basically all the black revolutionaries in 20th century America looked to the Soviet Union uh, and, and became Marxists, right? People like Du Bois um, and so many others. That's, that's all, that's super helpful. Um, and I think I love that. I love the I love many of the books that you have named. And so I'm glad to lift them up here. Um, I'm curious, thinking about your classroom itself. Um, what do these commitments look like concretely in terms of how you organize the syllabus, the spaces, the, um, the relationships, the sound? Could you, um, could you give us a few concrete examples of yeah, the way the way that that you practice this in your in your teaching. Yeah. So, um, you know, earlier I talked about the kind of tension between politics and pedagogy. And for me, Marxist pedagogy is really not about teaching Marxism at all. Actually, it doesn't mean teaching Marxism or Marxist ideas or analysis or, you know, convincing students that it's right. Um, it's actually about allowing creating space where unexpected and unforeseen encounters between students and uh, myself and the, the, the educational content can appear and be organized in new ways that uh, sort of help us disidentify ourselves uh, and make the familiar seem strange and create an openness to the world as it otherwise is. And for me, that's the pedagogical task that I tried to do. And, you know, my goal as a teacher, I state this and I organize the curriculum, my, my syllabi around this, that they're always based around, you know, a couple of books, 
um, most of which I haven't read because I frame them as collective inquiries. And we're, um, you know, I don't say that like, you know, I'm, I don't have anything to teach you or I'm going to learn more from you than you will from me. Um, although we do learn and also unlearn a lot together. But basically, I just try to set up these conditions through the syllabus. Why I like books is because there's so many access points to it for so many different students and we can really follow the text. I really, my main goal is I want the students to understand this and then to provide them with as many concepts and theories and frameworks as possible to make sense of all the different um, phenomena in their lives and all the different struggles they're engaged with, all the different challenges that we all face. And then in terms of assignments, um, you know, some of them are organized around public interventions. So for example, in my last, uh, in the critical disability studies class that I just taught, the final projects were to intervene in a public way on campus to basically make people uh, uh, have to study, right? Become kind of stupid to the, the architectural and the intellectual segregation that takes place uh, once you get by getting into the university, and then also once you're there. Um, and you know, the only limitation is like just try not to get me in trouble for that. Um, but I got tenure, so at that that threshold is higher, fortunately. Um, and then we'll also do things like you know, well, if we're going to take seriously that. Um, we have to be open to, you know, that which we can't anticipate, you know, we might do things like listen, um, we'll listen and prioritize the voice of the air conditioner in a classroom. And we'll think about all that, how did it come to be that none of us really heard the air conditioner before, right? What work is that doing for us? What voice, what, what is that as a voice for us? Um, and same thing with dialogue and discussions, right? Is it about what's said or is it about how it's said? And I like to call attention to students like gestures on their faces, right? I mean, we all know the face of the student that like finally gets it, right? That's like, right, that light bulb moment or whatever. But I'm more interested in the faces that are like, what the, what are you talking about? What's going on, right? That's really my goal because like once you, once you can, once we can, we can get to a point where it's like, wait a second, like, why does it, why is it like that? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Um, that's when we can begin to like, be like, okay, well, we can actually, it could be totally different because there's no real good reason, right? And this is why the model, I basically just try to be a kid as a teacher, right? Because what do kids do? They just like ask endless questions. And, you know, why do we do this? Well, because of this. Well, why do we do that? And, you know, usually those end in like, just, you know, that's just because it's the way we do it, which is basically us admitting like we have no idea why. So I really just try to keep that going and to model that for students and to model the thought process. And then um, there's other ways like I, I um, that it kind of happens organically. You know, I taught a class on Marxist capital and it's so my favorite story, you know, after the first meeting, this student came up and was like, oh, I'm the, I'm the president of the Young Democratics Club here and we'd love for you to speak. And I was like, 100%, you know, just let me know when and where. And then a couple of weeks later, as we were like halfway through the text, I, I followed up and she was like, oh no, I'm leaving that. We're starting a socialist group. You know, would you be our advisor? And I was like, okay, for sure. And that wasn't, I didn't intend that to happen. I would have been fine if that didn't happen, right? But that's how it worked out. Um, but for me yeah, as a teacher, it's not really, and actually like, I don't actually teach that much Marx like proper in my classes. Um, 
And I think a lot of students are interested in that because of the work that I'm doing and talking about and trying to plug them into. Is that, is that help or does that answer the question? Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah, well, is, was there any particular learnable moment for you that where a student uh, or a group of students did something in the classroom that caused you to rethink something in a major way? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, there's probably a million, but I'll say um, one of the, uh, I lead a, a study abroad trip for, uh, to visit a, a community of Koreans in Japan. The organization is called Chongnyeon, C-H-O-N-G-R-Y-O-N. You can read about this. Um, very interesting history. I won't get into here, but basically it's a group of Koreans um, who are uh, pro-North Korea. They're actually DPRK citizens. Um, and they have their whole, they have a university, a Korean university, a network of schools, because when Japan colonized Korea, they enslaved Koreans, brought them to Japan to work as sex slaves and forced laborers. And after World War II, and they were the Japanese Empire was defeated. Um, you know, they wanted to start reclaiming their their heritage and their culture. And there was an indigenous government in the north, right? And a government led by Koreans, where Koreans who had been fighting for decades against Japanese colonialism were in power. And in the South, of course, the U.S. was in power. They just transferred Japanese colonial rule to the U.S. colonial rule. And so that's why they looked there. And in all that hardships at that time, the DPR, North Korea, sent them money to start building schools and start teaching Korean culture and dance and language. And they're a very oppressed um, you know, national minority in Japan uh, by the government and you know, right-wingers and, and racists. They protest outside these kids' elementary schools, calling them cockroaches, throwing rocks at them and doing terrible things. So I'd lead a, a, a uh, I've been building a relationship with them for a long time and also not just me, but through my, the, the movements and the, and the organizations I'm a part of. And I mean, the first time I brought students there, it was just remarkable because uh, we spent time, of course, you know, discussing the history of Korea and the Korean Revolution and the unfinished struggle for liberation, socialism and independence um, and kicking the U.S. out. And, you know, it's one thing to think about that intellectually, but then when they, when we got there, just to see the students, the, you know, North Korean students and the U.S. students immediately, like, immediately just become like best friends, you know, I mean, you know, which is like, means like, you know, sharing their Instagram handles with each other and, you know, like showing each other pictures of their dogs and stuff. And they all came back, like with a totally transformed uh, image of what Korea was and what the Korean struggle was and this commitment to it. And these are students that, I mean, that wasn't my goal per se. It was, I mean, I wanted to change their understanding of it and, you know, really correct their understanding of it, but they became very passionate about it. And even, you know, I mean, because I'm not a Democrat or a Republican, it actually helps me uh, reach uh, both of those groups, right? Because I mean, so many students I know that are Republicans aren't Republicans because they're like racist or anything. It's just like, they hate the like hypocrisy of the liberals. And so, um, you know, we're able to like, you know, sort of bring all those groups together. And so just going to see that, like, when they get home, you know, they're texting me like, oh, I'm defending, you know, uh, the DPRK to my aunt right now. And, and things like that is really definitely transformative and show me just how those person to person experiences, right? Those human exchanges are so crucial, right? You can't, you can't know what's happening in a movement online. You know, you can't learn 
a, 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 a people or a movement online because that's not, you know, that's not public information. Um, and that's why the US government, for example, won't let us travel to certain countries because they don't want us to see that, oh, these are people too. And their system of society might actually be better organized than ours is. So I say that for me, that definitely stands out. Wow, thank you for that example. I guess the next thing I wanna ask, um, I'd love to talk about Liberation School, um, which is a coalition you're part of that's maintained by the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Um, will you tell us how this group came about and how you're connected to it, what the vision is? Give us the rundown. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So the um, Liberation School, liberationschool.org, is basically was started by the PSL, I think in 2015 at launch with the intention of being sort of an online Marxist school uh, for people who are interested in revolutionary politics and interested in socialism. Um, and a, a lot of the initial material was based on our, you know, some of the journals and longer articles that we had published. And so I was brought in as an editor in 2016 to uh, do a couple of things. One, it was to begin to uh, edit some of the internal documents in the party that analyze, uh, you know, in, in really detailed terms with a strategic vision, right? How we can best intervene in the moment, how we can best understand the different elements and forces of our current conjuncture. Um, and also creating like study guides for classic texts and Marxism, explainers, uh, analytical and more historical articles that about key moments in communist history in the US and abroad. Um, and so in that work, which uh, in, since about 2018 has been done by an editorial collective that, I, that uh, we've assembled that's really, really tremendous, um, we've expanded that into actually doing our own uh, courses. So we have courses on the on the black struggle in the US, on fascism, on China, on climate uh, solutions beyond capitalism, on prison abolition. And one that I did initially uh, as a video class was uh, Capital Volume 1, and that ended up turning into the podcast, uh, Reading Capital with Comrades. And the goal really is to um, is to train a new generation of fighters and revolutionaries in the United States in uh, terms of their our ability to formulate the correct tactics and strategies for the moment, in terms of our ability to know, you know, the founding texts and the key moments uh, in the legacy that we carry on today, because I think that's really important is that we have to understand that like, we're not the first ones to be doing this and we inherit a tremendously inspiring history, right? That goes before Marx, of course, right? Um, to, you know, people have always resisted, right? Um, and so what do we need to know about that? What does that teach us about what we need to do today? Um, and so that's, that's really the main goal. And I, I encourage people to check it out because I think it's, um, I think that the work that's done there, especially as a collective, right, we really do everything we, there's individual names on things, but you know, they're always collective products because we, we think so much better as a collective. And, you know, as I said, no single person can know exactly what's needed at one time and can know everything about it. Um, and so that's, that's it. And I, and I've been very happy with the work that we've been able to do. We also put out a book 
our first book uh, earlier this year called, uh, yes, thank you, Revolutionary Education, uh, Practice and Theory for Socialist Organizers that uh, has some theoretical articles and some articles of practical examples of revolutionary education and then like appendices to help uh, organizers um, you know, formulate discussion questions and study questions and, you know, different kinds of ones so that, and, and really in many ways, that's part of my overall work, which is not to say this is the Marxist theory of education, or this is the revolutionary pedagogy, but really to just contribute to the development of common concepts and ideas and theories that we can all use um, to refine and assess, you know, and, and implement and redefine and continually improve our educational processes uh, in the movement, at protests, right, in schools, wherever they're happening. Yeah, thanks for that answer. Um, I'm going to use this book in my class in the spring. So, Oh, really? Yeah, I got it. I, I just happened upon it at the uh, local feminist bookstore, Karis Books. Shout out to Paris Books and More, yeah. um, the oldest feminist bookstore in the South. <laughs> uh, I want to go further with this. Uh, where do you see spaces where this kind of collective um, transformation is happening? What, where do you look for uh, models of this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, one thing of one. I, one thing, of course, is we can look to history and to contemporary examples of people building socialism, right? And here, I think it's important that um, we also prevent ourselves from becoming dogmatic or orthodox in terms of so so often, you know, Marxist academics will look at a socialist country or you know a country trying to develop socialism, and they'll measure it against their checklist of what Marx said in this book and that book, right? But that's that's not how we should do it, right? Um, because it's not it's not about like that doesn't really tell us everything, right? And the socialist project isn't about adhering to everything that Marx said or Marx didn't say. And the socialist projects, you know, the, the socialist revolutions happened not where capitalism was most developed, but where it was least developed. And so, you know, Cuba and China, I mean, they it's not like they were just building communism on the fruits of capitalism you know they had to also develop the means of production and the forces of production and they had to how are we going to feed all these people and you know there's no formula for that and mistakes are going to be made but also tremendous achievements are going to be made right so there's spaces like that that are happening of course um, in terms of the actual struggle and those actual states and those movements um, there's also the uh, International People's Assembly, which is like an international grouping of parties and social movements across the world that are coming together to, um, you know, really, really re reconstruct the international revolutionary movement, right, around, around the revolutionary politics. Um, another example is the People's Forum, where I've been able to teach as an instructor. They have a physical location in New York City, and they also do online classes. And um, to me, that's a, that's a fantastic example of where this work is happening, um, because it's open and it's not, you know, you don't have to, you know, believe, X, you know, these three specific things, you know, you don't have to have a stance on what happened on the Soviet invasion of Hungary in 1956, right? Like, to do anything, because nobody cares about that, right? Um, and not that, you know, some of us should, it's important, but like, you know, if you go on the street and you ask people like, 
you know, hey, I'm a socialist. They're not going to be like, oh, what do you think about Trotsky? You know, I mean, they, they don't care about that. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I think the People's Forum and the way that they're bringing art and culture and formal and informal and, and you know, sort of really inventive pedagogical uh, experiments on board. It's another place I, that I see this happening. And I think that that is what I'll offer for right now, unless you want to hear more. I mean, I will, I'll, let me also say, I think in the movements themselves is where I see this happening, right? So um, oftentimes, well, you know, the, the sort of more liberal minded people, when, you, when, they, when they're in charge of an organizing meeting, they start off with, all right, what's our goal, right? And the goal has to be winnable, right? And, you know, there's some value to that, but it's winnable under the current conditions, but isn't our goal to transform those conditions, right? So instead of beginning with like, what's our goal that's winnable, we can begin with a broader horizon, right? What do we wanna do? We wanna build a revolutionary movement to fundamentally transform society and to put power in the hands of working and oppressed peoples, right? To determine our own lives and to reorganize society along the lines of, um, you know, of human and planetary and ecological need rather than profit. And once we begin with that horizon, right, then that leads to a very different kind of discussion, right? Our tactics and strategies flow from the facts that we have, from the fact to be accomplished, right? The revolution that we have to accomplish. And then we go from there rather than this tiny reform that we need to accomplish. And then we go from there. Well, although of course, sometimes, you know, I mean, right now I'm involved in a struggle at the library around library leadership in Indianapolis, right? And it's not a revolutionary struggle and we're not trying to make it into one, right? It is, but, you know, so I'm, I'm not saying that there's no place for that, but that's, a, that's kind of a, an example of a like contrast, compare and contrast. I really appreciate that because um, I think it's a way to talk about um, process. Like it, it makes the process, like who are we to each other and what are we building here in these movements central rather than like, the means justify the ends. You said earlier in earlier, I can't remember where it was, I was taking notes about the sort of pedagogy, thinking about pedagogy, not as this ends oriented learning outcome thing that pre presumes deficit, but what are the means and how are we getting there and what is study and like making that part of a um, a politics of movement building, um, which to me sort of like brings us full circle and like not just like pedagogy is it politics, but kind of redefining the terms of both if we're redefining like what movement towards the world is. I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of thinking that through. Um, mm -hmm. This has been just like hanging in my mind. And this is this was not on the questions we sent you, but I'm thinking about many, many, many contexts I have been in in my life where I have had a colleague who, um, or I've heard somebody who is like a dean who like, you know, decided they were not going to participate in, they weren't going to back the grad union anymore, or they weren't going to, like, they're not involved in any kind of movements outside their classrooms. And one of the lines that I often will hear is, um, well, the classroom is my political space, as like this, um, and I feel like I, my, 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 previous response to this is 
that's not enough. And I don't think your politics are good. So I, so I don't care, but I feel like you, I feel like Derek, you are the one to ask, like when, when some, when a liberal says the classroom is a political space, um, as some kind of like apologia for not being, not going to the protest or something like how do we think about that that utterance? That, this yeah. is a very self-indulgent question, but I, I'm asking it. Well, you're not the only one grappling with it, for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, one thing is, I think that, especially with academics, right, like professors, is I think oftentimes, um, you know, the, the, the it, it is, it's a justification to not do political work, you know? Um, and then what, what does that do, but really give like fodder to the right wing to be like, oh, well, I mean, if your political work is happening in your classes only, then, you know, that, I mean, that opens you up to all these kinds of attacks from the right wing, right? That you're trying to like get your students to, to be, you know, to, to come to this politics. And oftentimes they aren't right. And it's really about like consciousness raising, right. And whatever. But I mean, here's the thing, like people in the United States. Like they don't need to, like, we don't, they don't need anybody to tell them that capitalism is terrible and that like the police are racist and that the prison system is racist and that like things need to change and that, you know, like the, the entire system is unjust, right? What they, what we really need is to like show people that it has been radically different and it can be radically different, right? Um, we need to help people, not just explain to them that it's possible, but to, create educational experiences through which we feel alternatives that are present within our own. I think that's really important. Um, and the other thing is I think that there's something about, there's a kind of academic exceptionalism that takes place, right? Because being a professor, it's a job. It's a way that I sell my labor power in order to survive. And it's a way that like, um, it's a kind of exploitation that there's uh, more like that's kind of a little bit better for for me anyways in terms of some autonomy and it's a, I'm able to blend it with my interests. But I don't think that um, that the classroom is is any more uh, of a, a space where we can develop politics than working in a warehouse and talking with um, you know the person next to me about our working conditions, right? Or you know, I mean. The, the other day I was just, you know, the internet providers, they like, they sign you up on this, uh, you know, $50 a month special for a year, and then they raise it 50 bucks. And so I always call them and, you know, get it back down. And this year I couldn't get it all the way back down. She was like, all I can do is, you know, add five bucks. And I was like, I was like, yeah, you know, why is it that like the price of everything always goes up except for our wages? And she was like, I know. And, you know, like there's always moments to agitate. I don't think that, I mean, I think in some ways the classroom is a very special place. I think universities and schools are, but they're not. I don't think they should be privileged as sites of struggle because also like when, when social movements have happened, students and professors have been a part of that, but not really as professors or intellectuals. It's not like when movements start, then it's like, oh yeah, let's go see who the most famous intellectuals are and they'll tell us what to do. No, you know? Um, like the, the things that I've come up with aren't, I haven't come up with them. They've, you know, been like random chances and I've assembled different things that I've put together and tried to try, try to find expression, a way to give expression to things that are already happening in the movement. Right. And then to, to add my own specialization to it. 
Um, and so I would say one, like, the, the, yeah, because the other thing I hear is that like, oh, we need new ways of thinking about political activity beyond protests and whatnot, right? And and I'm sympathetic to that. Like one of my colleagues, uh, Sahar Sadarzadeh, does a lot of this work, right? And I'm not I'm not dismissive of it. It's very important. But at the same time, I mean, I remember in graduate school there was this person who was like this. Um, you know, it was like work was really critical, but like never went to a single demonstration or protest, and always had some critique about it in order to like you know not justify not going there. But it's like, you know, mass movements are by definition contradictory because they involve the masses right like like i said earlier like you can't have a you can't have a, a struggle that's just composed of like the people who agree with you right there's going to be disagreements you're not going to know a lot of things but that's the risk that we have to take in getting involved with politics um and so we have to like leave those the safe confines where we're the experts and we're the authorities and actually submit ourselves to the demands of the social movements themselves so i'm not sure if that helps answer your question or if you have a follow-up for that because it is really really important um and i also don't want to like you know tactically speaking right of course i don't want to like you know dismiss or alienate these folks right i want to try to like bring them along and see you know, like, because not everybody has to be an organizer. I absolutely, you know, not every, that's fine, right? But I think that we should acknowledge that, you know, and be like, okay, what happens in the classroom? It's like, it's like, you know, everything is political, but that doesn't mean everything is politics, you know? Everything is political, our personal relationships, but that doesn't mean that my personal relationship is a political transformation, right? Po that's not what politics is, right? Politics is like a larger scale thing. You know, like these sort of micro level interactions are definitely important, but that actually isn't politics, right? Um, so I think that that's a crucial distinction to make. Um, politics has to be collective, it has to be organized, it has to be driven by a common vision. Um, you know, not super detailed, right? Not a blueprint of what's to come, but a common vision of like, yeah, we want, we want to not only resist racism and resist capitalism and resist, you know, oppression based on gender and, and ability and so on and so forth. We want to get rid of that. Like, I, I honestly, like, I tell people this all the time, like, I'm, I don't really like protesting. Like, honestly, I would rather just like hang out with my dogs at the end of a work day, you know, and like watch some TV. I don't protest because I like to protest. I protest because I want to win. So I don't have to protest anymore. <laughs> right? So like, that's not the end goal, right? I don't do it. because I do it because I want to win. And I think that's the important thing. It's like, do we want to win? And what do we want to win? And, and what do we have to do to get there? And what's my role in that at any given moment in time? I'm going to use your term here. Um, what is your revolutionary optimism for these times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you know, revolutionary optimism is, is so important because basically look at, if, you, if we don't believe in the power of the people to transform society, then why would we engage in any kind of political activity, mm -hmm. right? If we don't have absolute faith in the ability of working class people, and by working class people, I mean it, as Marx meant it, right? He defines workers as all of those who are subject to capital, whether they're in prison or not, whether they're um, working at home or not for, without wages, right? Whether they're waged or unwaged laborers, right? Whether they're working in factories or fields, whether they're you know uh, unemployed and homeless, those are all workers for Marx. Um, 
we have to believe that we all have the capacity to transform the world. And again, I think that's why history is so important. Uh, uh, Richard Becker has a great, great line. Oh, you know, actually this, this is from uh, John Reed's 10 Days That Shook the World, where he's, uh, you know, he's in, he's in, uh, you know, the, the throes of the revolution in Russia. And he's talking about going to the front lines, right, where these soldiers are just like emaciated, and they don't have antibiotics, you know, and they're struggling, and like, they're, they're underfed, right, and they're dehydrated. And he says, we approached and the first thing they asked us was, do you have anything to read, right? Not do you have painkillers and do you have antibiotic ointments and do you have food or water, but do you have anything to read? And that shows that like in these moments, it was about like the ideas and like, do you have something to help me understand what the situation I'm in and how to get out of it, right? And then Richard Becker has this line about how revolutions are almost like thermodynamic, thermonuclear reactions where you know, you have like the inputs create a qualitatively different output. And once the revolutionary enthusiasm, enthusiasm of the masses is unleashed, like we can do anything and, and things can change so rapidly. So I'll give you an example. In January of 2020, defund the police um, was a slogan that was accepted amongst one small sector of like the left movement actually, right? And it was very, very like, you know, fewer than 1% of the people in the US had any idea what you would mean by that, right? Um, and then all of a sudden in, in, some, in the summer of that year, right? Defund the police, everybody's gotta have a position on it. You know, the, the most mainstream po uh, political figures have to respond to it in some way. And that shows the ability of consciousness to change, right? In a matter of weeks, not because somebody told them the right thing or they got the right phrasing or they read the right book, but because they actually were in the streets shoulder to shoulder with others who were like them in many ways and unlike them in other ways, realizing that they have a common interest and that they can change the world, you know? And it's that kind of feeling, I think, that, uh, that demonstrates revolutionary optimism and that like that's our guiding thread. So the sources of revolutionary optimism, you know, to me for today, I think there's so many, right? I mean, there's so much doom and gloom predictions on, oh, not America's fascist and Nazification. And of course, yeah, the right wing is, you know, is, is very dangerous. I mean, you know, I mean, not honestly, the street gangs less so than the Supreme Court, you know, and the political establishment and the right wing, of course, includes both the Democratic and the um, uh, Republican parties, if you look at who's appointed who to the Supreme Court, right? So obviously a clearly bipartisan thing. Um, so I would find revolutionary optimism in like how many people took to the streets after the Dobbs decision was leaked, after the Dobbs decision came out, you know? How many people in like, you know, the summer of 2020, those rebellions against the war on black America were historic because millions and millions of people came out, right? Um, and it wasn't just black people. Right? And it wasn't just people of different like oppressed races and nationalities. It was a lot of white people too. It was a lot of middle-class white people too, right? And their consciousness was transformed radically through that struggle. And so, you know, Lenin has this quote where he talks about, I think it's in left-wing communism, but there are, um, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, right? But there are decades when nothing happens and there's days when decades happen, right? Or there's weeks when decades happen. And mm -hmm. so, 
that's the revolutionary optimism. And we have to look like, because we're all, I, I tell my students this, think about the future in 30 years, right? And then what does that future look like? Does it look radically different or does it look like today with like maybe some different, you know, platforms and apps or something like that, right? And it's always a ladder because every social system presents itself as like the final solution ultimately, right? Everything has been leading up to now and we all we can do is tweak it and make it better. But, you know, if we were living in 1840 in the United States, a lot of people would be saying, well, you know, yeah, slavery is bad, but like slavery is around from my parents' time, my grandparents' time and my great-grandparents' time. So, you know, we should just make it a little bit better. But uh, of course, you know, that it took a war, right? As many it, radical changes actually do because, you you know, it's not as if the slave owners gave up their slave slaveocracy just be through dialogue and, you know, dialogic pedagogy or town hall meetings, right? Took a lot of struggle. Um, but that's the revolutionary optimism is like, yeah, look at, look at how, you know, the Vietnamese, they beat the United States, right? Yeah. They were eating, like their diet was a bowl of rice every single day, right? And they were fighting for decades, right? In like, in incredible sacrifice. And they beat the most powerful US military in the world, right? And like that for me is a source of revolutionary optimism. Like if they can do it, Right. And it also puts our own our own sacrifices in perspective. Right. Which is not to say that we all need to do that because we're in a different situation. But it's also like we're preparing to do that. Right. We have to look at our organizing today as dress rehearsals for the revolutionary struggle and the revolutionary movement. Right. So we look at each test, you know, when when we face police repression or, you know, uh, state repression. We don't back down. We got to fight it because if we're, if we're going to, if we're going to back down in the face of that, then how in the hell are we going to like persist in actually like a protracted struggle against the state where they're going to be arresting people, they're going to be killing, you know, all this, right. Which has happened historically. Uh, so we have to begin stealing ourselves for that. And so for me, that's the revolutionary optimism, those examples, uh, and, and what's happening currently, like I'm incredibly optimistic and it doesn't mean that, you know, it's going to happen, but it means that it can happen as long as, you know, we, we, we galvanize the subjective forces necessary to make it happen. Wow. This is the, this is the conversation I wanted to have at the end of the semester, um, mm -hmm. which of course is only the beginning of something else. And as I move into teaching a class on, on organizing and theories and practices of organizing in the spring, um, I, uh, I think we are, we, we could talk all day. Um, and I think to be respectful of everybody's time, I want to just ask our last question, which is, what are you reading, listening to, watching, consuming, making? I see some guitars and musical instruments in the background of your screen right now that you might want to recommend to our listeners. And then Tina and I can take our turn as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, right now, to be honest, I'm listening to Taylor Swift's new album a lot. Um, and also Tegan and Sarah have a new album. I've been listening to that a lot. And of course, Christmas music. Um, I like Christmas movies. They're basically communist tales. They usually have a social democratic ending, but if you think about it, like the enemies are always landlords or real estate developers or bankers, you know? Um, and the only unrealistic parts are when they, you know, they just come around and, you know, realize the wrongs that they've done. Um, and so I am, uh, reading Steph Sarasso's Sounding Composition, 
it's a text that I want to be teaching next semester, and uh, also a book called Socialist Reconstruction in America that just came out. Um, that's basically uh, going back to what I said before about comparing apples to apples, right? You know, we shouldn't compare a capitalist United States to a socialist Cuba right now. Let's compare a capitalist United States to what a socialist United States could look like. And so it's a for, so it's basically a book that said that says, all right, let's assume that we've had a revolution and that oppressed people are in power. How would we go about reorganizing society to meet people's needs? And it's offered as a point of discussion, right? It's not saying like you need to agree with everything in here or whatever, but like we need to have an ideological vision that can grip the people and, and inspire them, right? And we need to be thinking about that in detail. We can't just be like, you know, I mean, there's there's obviously like, okay, you can look at, well, you know, there's, um, you know, like for every homeless person in the United States, there's like five vacant houses. So we could give every homeless person, you know, a vacant house and we still have so many left over. I mean, that's important, but what would we do? What would we do to the telecommunications industries, right? What would we do uh, with the criminal, uh, 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 criminal system, right? Uh, how would we transform like our practice, our daily practices? What would we do about the environment? How would we change education? That's what I'm reading now. And I'm finding it really, really interesting. Um, and I definitely recommend it. It is, uh, you know, it's very accessibly written too. Amazing. Tina. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to bedazzle with my intellectual offering here. Um, when I heard about the actor, Leslie Jordan's um, death, I, I started watching um, call me cat about a woman who runs a cat cafe and he plays the baker in the, in the series. It's very bittersweet at the end. Uh, mm -hmm. and the, and the cast had a lot of trouble cause it was such a sudden death, um, from this, you know, really veteran character actor. Um, so at that and, uh, working with our facilities staff who've just been sold their term in our plantation capitalist system at my college to Aramark. So, so it's really good uh, to get to hear what you had to say, Derek. Optimism, yeah. Revolutionary optimism on a very dreary day talking with the National mm -hmm. Relations Board, for example. So thank you. All right, uh, Lucia, your last but not least. And I see you have um, a light bulb over your head, which I think- Oh, what? You have a light bulb over your head. Oh, whole. yeah, it's a, a <laughs> free all political prisoners, which is to say all prisoners in the thing behind me in our offices, yeah. which are gender studies and religious studies. Okay. Um, Brittany Griner's free. Yes. Uh, I'm so happy about Brittany Griner. Um, and so we've we've mentioned her on the podcast before. And, uh, you know, as everybody knows, I am a huge WNBA fan. Um, so that, yo, I mean, I've just been, I know that this is like, this is like fun. We, I rarely, I try to keep myself from talking about quote unquote work things. Um, but my students have created just extraordinary final projects that are ma making things. So I'm sitting here looking at a, a replica of a satanic temple, but a satanic temple in the imagination of the Christian right. Um, so how does it, and there's like a giant rainbow flag and there's a, there's a closet that says 
gender neutral robes, free drugs. Um, so it's kind of utopian. Um, yeah, and uh, the student is creating using our makerspace ideal lab to create a 3D RuPaul to be the pastor of, of the satanic temple. So um, that's what I will share. Nice. Um, hey, if I can share one more thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for it. I just, there was a, um, and this last year, I've been involved in in several international meetings about the um, the U.S. proxy war against Russia they're waging in Ukraine right now. Yeah. Um, and at the People's Forum, they just hosted a really wonderful um, uh, event that's also available on their YouTube page. Um, it's called the Path to Peace. Mm. Um, and it's really about inaugurating a new anti-war movement against this, uh, you know, U.S.-led uh, war against Russia and against Ukrainian people, which of course started with the, you know, the U.S. supporting the fascist overthrow of the uh, of the government in 2014. But anyways, I would I would highly encourage people to listen to the speeches there. They're they're really really excellent and provide a lot of political clarity. It's a very a very confusing and disorienting situation for so many, especially given the like nonstop imperialist propaganda about like, yeah. you know, Russia, which is like, you know, I mean, as if like any of the problems in the US are Putin's fault or something. Um, but anyways, I think it, I really recommend that. That's yeah. really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Derek, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. This has been this has been amazing. I can't wait for our listeners to hear it. By the time they hear me saying this, they will have heard it. Um, <laughs> And uh, yeah, I, this has been great. Yeah, thank you so much, Derek. Yeah, thank you, I've appreciated it. It's been a fun conversation. Thank you for listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast, and our interview with Derek R. Ford. Our intro music is by Lance Eric Hagen, with Lance Eric Hagen and Aviva and the Flying Penguins performing. Our outro music is by Acrasis from Children Singing in Hell, and the song is A Good Spy. Max Bowen raps and guitar, and Mark McKee, beats and trumpet. Aaliyah Harris is our audio engineer who works miracles for us. After nearly six years of running the Radical Pedagogy Podcast as a mostly self-funded operation, we've decided to open up opportunities for our listeners to support our work. Your donations will help cover the cost of maintaining our website and streaming services, as well as the pay for our amazing audio editors and student interns. Thank you in advance for your encouragement and support as we've taken this journey together. Look for us on Patreon.com. An altruistic conspiracy, an affirmation of nonsense. We are what we pretend to be. I'm pretending to want to talk about Kurt Vonnegut, phonic tyranny, overvetching vomit, even a formless turd can form words. 
sentences, paragraphs, essay length, APA, MLA, brains plasticity defines you like a hairstyle, mostly ephemeral, I'm a fine-tuned dosage of Demerol, these pills will let you live again, puppy mills behind my eye sockets, we quit trying, so why knock it?